Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and I am happy to accept that definition. I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it to begin with. So now I love the Bible as a classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you are a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. But then again, if it weren't so puzzling, we wouldn't have a show. Okay, uh, this comes from Ricky James, and uh, he uh, says the subject is Superman and Fritz Nietzsche. Now, I uh, feel obliged to read this since uh, Ricky obviously intended it to be shared, but I do find it highly embarrassing, uh, just so you know that. Here we go. Um, this amazing stranger is a longtime fan of the geek, a veritable Jimmy Olsen of the Superman of Bible criticism. Like the last son of Krypton, he may have doubts and moments of weakness, but those of us who have the privilege of appreciating his superhuman talents are given the gift of hope. Bob Price is the living proof that truth, justice, and the American way are not dead, quite aside from the exaggerated reports of their demise. This may seem rather high praise, but it is from someone who is more inclined to criticism and contrarianism. Perhaps it is exotic, but it is completely honest. I've probably listened to more hours of Dr. Price than I have of any other human being, and I can say with certainty that it was not in vain. In the sending of this, I am conscious that such high praise is adverse to the Bible Santa's humility, another characteristic which he shares with the man of tomorrow, though I might reasonably insist that the geek at least represent the spirit of my opening paragraphs, as we, his indebted audience, Excuse me, believes he deserve, believe he deserves it, whether or not he or anyone else agrees. And like the action ace, our biblical hero has to squirm through our appreciation of him, no matter how outlandish the statue we build. No man so possessed of talents has the right to an excess of humility, though such humility might well be an important component of his charm and even his critical intellect. We're going to admire you and make outlandish blandishments, whether you like it or not. I've never had the pleasure of meeting the geek in person, but I know how to recognize a friend when I see one. Uh, thank you, Ricky. I, uh, I should just say, oh, shucks. Okay. Uh, um, and here's the question. What do you think of Friedrich Nietzsche? What do you think Friedrich Nietzsche would say of Superman and his golden, silver, and other incarnations? You know, he 
golden age, you know, up to 1950 or so, um, uh, silver up to, uh, oh, the mid-70s maybe, and since then. Uh, Nietzsche criticized humanism, socialism, and many other aspects of modern religious tribal thinking. And Superman would seem to be, in some ways, an incarnation of truth and morality, which Nietzsche criticized. Nonetheless, Nietzsche seemingly admired his version of the Christ. Unlike some of Superman's foes, Nietzsche would not have a knee-jerk rejection of the role of the superior man or the person who makes others feel inadequate. Superman expresses no resentment. Uh, His enemies frequently imitate something like it, no, intimate something like it, when they insist that Superman has a secret desire to exercise forceful control and engage in the sort of forceful control they exercise. Uh, Yet in Superman's retorts, as seen in Grant Morrison's Superman and the Authority conversation with Manchester Black and many other stories, uh, are uh, his retorts are that such petty considerations don't motivate him because he has his own principles and goals that override such atavistic reactions. Nietzsche and his sometimes kin spirit, uh, Sterner, I don't know who that is, I'm sorry to say, uh, often focused on how, how our biological reality and existential concerns drive our framing and interpretation of events and experience. Superman's gentle and benevolent nature can be seen as derived as much from his highly evolved Kryptonian background uh, as from the uh, empathy and love of the Kents. Pre-crisis, that is before the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot, uh, Alex Ross... Um, uh, pre-crisis, Alex Ross and Grant Morrison Superman seem to indicate that Superman's human empathy is not in contradiction to his Kryptonian superhuman abilities, uh, but only enhanced uh, by them. Even John Burns Superman knows where everyone lives. Pre-crisis often discussed his super willpower, but what about how his hundred thousand year more advanced nervous system allows him to actually remember, parse, and integrate the emotional content of everyone he has ever interacted with? An aspect sometimes neglected in theology and often in comics is how such a godlike being would simultaneously be inhuman slash alien in its scope and intellect, but also be more human than human, to quote Robert Zombie. Also think of Captain Kirk meditating on Spock after his short-lived death. Of course, such kaleological, uh, kaleological, uh, philosophical and literary points could be easily transposed to the slightly more famous man-god Jesus Christ. Someone on a DC Comics 
focused podcast I listened to said, I believe in Superman the way some people believe in Jesus. To get to the point of this essay slash question, what would Friedrich Nietzsche think of the comic book character Superman? And how does his philosophy fit in with the science fantasy version of Krishna? Um... Oh, I do have an interesting note about that. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, let me do that before a couple of more questions here. I think uh, Nietzsche would have found Superman, the Ubermensch, authentically Nietzschean in two big ways. Because he is superior, his enemies are those whom Nietzsche compares to poison flies. Uh, they're, they're pests, pesky little nothings compared to him. Yet, uh, because of his superiority, putting them in the shade, uh, they hate him and want to bring him down. Uh, an idea that itself is Prometheus and Promethean and ridiculous because how the heck could they take him down? Well, kryptonite, stuff like that, they come amazingly close, and in some of the imaginary stories, so-called, as if they all aren't, um, Lex Luthor does manage to poison him uh, with uh, kryptonite, one thing or another. Um, but at the same time, he is compassion, Superman is compassionate even toward the stinging flies. He won't let them pull him down. Uh, but... Um, he 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 hates the idea of killing anybody, no matter how uh, vicious, violent, nasty, etc. Uh, and uh, he, and so he and he he takes the Olympian view, the the uh, Buddhist view, really, uh, of Nietzsche that the the superior man, the Superman, uh, is has disinterested compassion. That is not play in favorites, a universal compassion toward all beings, which he can afford to have because of his greatness. Uh, and he, he uh, can't really be threatened. Nobody can do anything to bribe him. How, you know, how could you improve on Superman's lot, right? Uh, and so uh, his, his superiority inclines him not to despise those beneath him, but to save and love them. Uh, he's not like uh, the one set of gospel characters who say, this mob that knoweth not the law is a curse. Nope, nope, that's not him. Uh, he instead is uh, uh, like uh, Jesus who has compassion on the crowd because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Right? That's two, uh, two different options for the would-be uh, superior person to, to take, and it's obvious which ones Superman takes. Now, in, uh, the, um, in the great movie, despite what some folks say, uh, Batman versus Superman, uh, we see this really clearly because um, Lex Luthor tries to, mar to marshal the uh, 
the fears and, and uh, resentful envy of uh, of the the stinging insects, right? Uh, Superman is so powerful, they know they can't stop him. And even Batman is infected by this. He says, if this guy takes it into his head to rule us or destroy us, how are we going to prevent that? So we got to get rid of him. I mean, that is just the kind of opposition by the Lilliputians that uh, Nietzsche says the, the ubermensch must face. Uh, and uh, uh, and so they nearly do bring him down. But then uh, in a Christ-like fashion, he gives his own life to save humanity. And once Batman sees that, he realizes how wrong he had been and that Superman is a kind of bodhisattva of compassion. Uh, and and it's all. I mean, they really have grasped what is Nietzsche and about the the Superman myth. Uh, I think, and uh, that's uh, just great stuff. Okay, um, so I think that's what he would think of his comic book counterpart. Is uh, the comic book Superman like Krishna? I uh, I can think of one respect in which he is. Uh, Krishna used to, uh, play around with the, uh, the, the milkmaids who were sort of his groupies. He'd play tricks on them and they'd all laugh it off. This reminds me of the Silver Age Superman who would, uh, make fools of, uh, well, a, a fool of Lois Lane. Uh, she loved him and was like trying to trap him and this was just an awful debate. Ship of Lois Lane. Right, it's much better today, uh, where they make Lois Lane a heroic figure in her own right, like a fearless, uh, undaunted uh, uh, reporter, and uh, and and so forth. Uh, she's she's a much better character than she was as just an idiotic floozy in the in the Silver Age. But Superman would. Um, sort of uh have fun making a fool of her and that that spilled over even into the George Reeves series uh when he put one over on Lois and the others uh by uh concealing his uh super identity uh it's like he's all, and he has this smirk on his face for the audience to see it's like he's saying what fools these mortals be but uh, that's a little like uh, Krishna I guess uh, but um, I'm not sure how far I would push that. Uh, let's see. Okay, now these I uh, the okay. That's it. I guess yeah for for uh, for Ricky. Here is uh, a couple of questions from Andrew. He says, uh, I know you addressed this in many of the questions that people send in, but I would like to know if you think the New Testament outlines a clear path to salvation. If so, what must a man do to be saved? Could you please outline the steps, for instance, does someone need to be baptized to be saved? Well, um, Andrew, Apostle, uh, this is like so many other biblical and even New Testament uh, areas where there isn't any agreement. You have a lot of things that are compatible with one another, usually, more or less, but uh the statement of one does not seem necessarily to entail what's in the other statements. 
For instance, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, I think it is, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or you could translate that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, well, um, how much of an existential involvement is that? I know uh, people say, uh, well, if Jesus is your Lord, you're going to follow him and, and so on. Well, yeah, it might mean that, but think of in 1 Corinthians where it says, we know there are many gods and many lords, but for us, one God, the Father who created all things, and one Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created. Well, a kurios, a lord, uh, was uh, in that milieu often taken to mean a kind of secondary or junior god through whom the high god acted. Uh, and that's kind of what the logos meant also. So I am not so sure that that Romans passage is entailing any kind of uh, what uh, Wesley called a heartwarming experience. Um, I think it means if you are in the right religion that has been newly revealed, well, you're safe then. Now, that's not the way evangelists put it today, right? They're really completely influenced by the the uh, post-Lutheran um, pietistic movement that gets all gushy and so on. Um on my way to, to pick up breakfast this morning, I uh, happened to see uh, a billboard, that, uh, uh, well, some sort of a signboard in front of a church building that said, give all your love to Jesus. I don't see that kind of thing in the Bible, really. Uh, it, it seems this like it's a sentimental sort of stuff. If anything, it's like bhakti yoga in Hinduism. Um uh, let's see, what, what do we have in um, Acts 16 when uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi and the, um, the jailer uh, who um, is in charge of them when they're set free by an earthquake, he's uh, in a bad way and he thinks he's going to be executed for letting the prisoners escape. And uh, he uh, asks... Um, Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Uh, and they say, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And so all of them at dad's direction get baptized that very night. Again, to me, that speaks of no more than a simple switch of religious allegiance who knows what God he worshipped before. But apparently, uh, Paul is telling him, you need to switch over to the God I preach. After all, he did this miracle on my behalf. He didn't, he wasn't interested in freeing those other guys, those pickpockets over there. No, he's, uh, he's interested in me because I'm preaching his order. Okay, good enough for me. Uh, let's get baptized. Um, does it uh, say uh, about anything, any about uh, anything about an inner transformation? Well, not there. Uh, let's see. In um, oh, well, I, this doesn't count for most people. But in the longer ending of Mark, which wasn't originally part of the uh, of the text, 
uh, Jesus tells the disciples to go out and preach the gospel. And he says, uh, whoever is, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be damned. He doesn't repeat the baptism, but it's, it's pretty clearly, really inevitably implied in the first part of it, right? And again, that means, okay, I am now joining the, the brand new Christian religion to hell with the Mithraism and such. Uh, now, didn't they expect people would repent and so on? Well, that's a whole different thing, right? In um, With John the Baptist and then repeated by Jesus in the Gospels, right? So far, we've talked about a couple of passages from the epistles and uh, one from uh, Acts and one from the spurious ending of Mark. But the the original uh, texts of the Gospels, they, uh, well, at, uh, at least the synoptics, like remember John's Gospel, uh, where uh, he says, you, you wonder why I wrote all this stuff? Well, so that you may uh, believe that Jesus is the Christ and thus have eternal life. Well, again, believing in this religion's truth does the trick. Uh, well, let's uh, look at the synoptics, though. John the Baptist and Jesus say, the, the time is up. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to repent and believe in the gospel, right? But what is the gospel? Well, what you just heard, right? The, the spell of news. Uh, the time is up. The kingdom of God is at hand. So you better repent. And, and, uh, what does that mean? Just religious allegiance? Well, no. Uh, it's assuming, uh, Jesus doesn't say anything about a new religion. He's assuming, yeah, we're all Jews here, right? But some of us aren't living up to it. Well, you better start because the final judgment is at hand and they're going to be looking at your rap sheet. Uh, and so, uh, you better repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance. I want to see that you have repented, not just what you're saying about it. Okay, well, you have to uh, have reformed your life, and it's assumed you can do it. As Kant said, I ought implies I can, so you better. There's, there's nothing about believing in Jesus. It's just like, hey, you better take this seriously. It's like when Jesus says to the disciples he sends out with the same message, he says, if they don't buy it, uh, you shake the dust from your feet because judgment is going to fall soon on that unbelieving community. And you don't want any of the lightning bolts to hit your feet because you've got some of the dirt from their streets on your sandals. Right. Uh, and uh, so, um, it's like them saying, uh, uh, you know, your, your blood be on your own head, so to speak. But nevertheless, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is near. Well, that's kind of equivalent to when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe what I'm telling you. You haven't got much time. You better make good use of it. Uh, so even there, Jesus is not so much the, the answer, right? He's not the, the, the issue. Um, I'd say the same really is true. Like, look at the parable of the prodigal son in Luke. Uh, what is it that you need to do? Well, 
no matter how far away from God you've gone, you you can reconcile yourself to him. He's just waiting for you. Don't think you're like Hunter Biden. You know, I've, I've just made such a horrific mess of my life. It's all over for me. No, no, maybe not. Just like Joe Biden doesn't give a damn what Hunter did, as long as there's money in it for him, uh, the, the Heavenly Father, he doesn't really care what you did, uh, it, in, in one sense, because it's in the past. Uh, you can repent and straighten out, and like Ezekiel said, that's when he's going to start the recount of your uh, deeds. Uh, and so repent, that's it. He doesn't say, like Harnack said, here's the difference between the Gospels and the Epistles. Um, did Jesus go around telling people, hey, you've just got to repent uh, and turn to the Father, uh, knowing that, well, of course, this is all very provisional because in a couple of months, I'm going to be crucified and rise from the dead. And then it's going to be a little trickier because then I will be central to the message. Repentance will not be enough. What the heck? Harnack wisely said it's obvious that that something has changed here. We've gone from the religion of Jesus to the religion about Jesus. Or as Boltman said, the proclaimer has become the proclaimed. That implies a rather different view of what uh, saves. Uh, so there's, um, and this to bring this down to the present day, I always talk about an old pal of mine named Tim Grogan, uh, a, a great, uh, generous, fine, uh, open-hearted man who was so zealous to find the true version of Christianity that, and so intelligent that he was a good theological analyst, he would go like from the dispensationalist to the covenant theology people to uh, the charismatics uh, and and one thing and another, and he, he just kept going. It's what sociologists of religion call a conversion career. Uh, and uh, he finally thought he had settled down when he began to hear about the debate at Dallas Theological Seminary over whether it was sufficient for salvation to accept Jesus as your Savior, or did you, do you also have to accept him as your Lord and Savior? Because you hear both uh, formulae or slogans, recipes, whatever you want to call them, prescriptions, uh, depending on who you, you talk to or when you talk to some some people. Uh, fundamentalists, never having raised this particular question, didn't seem to realize there was an implicit difference in the two slogans, right? But some at Dallas Seminary said, well, wait a second, wait a second. How does God's saving grace apart from works fit into this? If you just have to accept Jesus as your Savior, because you, you say, well, look, I, I can't possibly be good enough to, to merit salvation. Uh, if I'm to be saved, it's because he is just grabbing me out of the fire. Uh, and that's why Jesus is your Savior. I took Jesus as my Savior. You take him to him good stuff. Um, but others said, uh, no, no, you're talking about 
Well, like what a friend of mine in seminary once said, saved by grace, so oh, blessed thought, sin as I will and never get caught. <laughs> what a deal. Uh, well, nobody really meant that, but they're trying to map this out, trying to get it straight. And so the one group said, you guys uh, that say uh, just Jesus as your savior, you're implicitly libertines. I mean, lucky for you, you may not see that logical implication, but if you're not saying that, that's what you should be saying, but don't, because you should also be saying, no, 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 you got to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which means if you say you believe in him, but you say, well, you know, I can do what I want, uh, 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 no, you, you're not really a Christian. You're not going to be saved. Uh, well, my friend Tim said, wait a second. You mean the Bible-believing fundamentalists are now unsure of what the gospel is? Okay, I've had it. And he just dropped the whole thing. Uh, and you can see why. Because who's got the, uh, you know, gospel, gospel, who's got the gospel? Uh, and uh, it is quite a serious thing, but naturally, people run the different biblical writings through the meat grinder and come up with some synthetic sausage theology. Uh, but it, it isn't that easy, and uh, it's not that simple as people would like to make it. Okay, move. Uh, second one, can you please describe what you consider to be Christianity's greatest contributions to human society? What about monotheism's greatest contributions? Um, well, it's easier for me to say what the Christian contributions are. I, I don't care what embittered, scorched earth atheists say about this. I don't think anyone can deny that Christian... Uh, missionary work um, and and social reform efforts and and charitable efforts uh, ha have not been a great asset to the human race and human progress. Uh, do you uh, do you have to believe in that stuff to do good works? <laughs> of course not, right? Uh, but the, they have been motivated by their faith in Christ uh, to uh, help the least of their brethren and on a worldwide scale. May not agree with everything they say or do, but, uh, you know, I think the actions speak louder than words, so I am willing. And, and a lot of individuals have been uh, saved from alcoholism and so on. I, you know, I don't really care what the heck you believe if you can improve your life and your your character. Uh, and so um, it seems to me Christianity, like other religions, oh, my God, Judaism, come on, amazing uh benefactor to, to humanity, but all of them have done uh, good things, and all of them have done bad things, because, you know, that's the nature of these pesky humans. Uh, we're a mixed bag, each one of us is. But I think uh, Christianity has done great things, as other monotheistic religions have as well. I, I don't really have enough of an idea of how beneficial polytheistic religions have been. Uh, they, I know like uh, ancestor worship has had good 
functions in the societies that practice it because you tend to think that your ancestors are watching from the next world. And if something bad happens to you, it's probably because they are punishing you for something bad you did to somebody else. Well, that's a kind of primitive-seeming social regulator, but it ain't bad. What the heck? Better than not having that. Uh, and, um, uh, the, uh, I, I just don't know enough about that, but I think of one thing, uh, when Julian the apostate, the, the, the Roman emperor who rejected Christianity and tried to restore paganism as the official Roman religion, uh, he griped one day that, like, there were always awful calamities happening in the Roman Empire because the state of medicine, there were plagues and pestilences all over the place, uh, and uh, and there were building collapses all over the place. You had multi-story tenements with no real plumbing or anything, and these it wouldn't take much of an earth tremor to, to crush these things. And one thing after another, there was no sewage system in some places. Well, um, or people getting killed in war. Well, Christians had the reputation of helping people and rescuing their neighbors and the victims of these things, whether they were Christians or not, whether the Christians even knew them personally or not. And people admired them. That was one of the things that that uh, inspired people to join up with Christianity. But uh, Julian the Apostate, having witnessed some of this stuff, he said, boy, I wish I could get our priests uh, to show a little of that compassion. But instead, if a disease breaks out, they're running for the hills. Uh, was that somehow a consistent implication of polytheism? I don't know enough to say. It's just uh, maybe that's relevant. Uh, but the other monotheisms have done a great uh, job, too. Okay, okay. Uh, here's a quickie from uh, uh, Paul. He says, what is meant by high Christology and low Christology? Or to put it another way, what do you mean by them? And is that um, controversial? Are there people who would disagree with you? Well, no, I, I wouldn't use such terms except in a descriptive way for the history of theology and well, theologies, Christologies today. A high Christology generally means you at least believe in the pre-existence of, of the Logos, the divine son, uh, that before he came to earth, he, he existed. I guess you, I would call the Jehovah's Witnesses Arian Christology a high Christology. They believe that uh, Christ was a created being like an archangel but the first creation of God and uh, all the other good stuff Christians say about him, they say, but he he was there from the creation on. Uh, that seems to me to be a high Christology. Of course, Trinitarianism or Nicene or Chalcedonian Christology, uh, all of which differ on other issues, but they all say, no, uh, they pre-existent Christ was eternal. He, he was never created. In fact, his being begotten as God's son refers to a relationship of dependence, not a chronological point of origin. Uh, but 
you know, so they would certainly have very high Christology. I would say docetism, though it's universally despised as a heresy, uh, the idea that Jesus never even really became incarnate, uh, but that he was a spiritual being, kind of a holographic projection, who seemed to be a, a, a real person on the earth, talking to people and so on. I would say even that is a high Christology, even though there are other things wrong with it, according to what orthodoxy says, right? And you get into problems with the atonement and, and the human nature of Christ, but still, this would be a high Christology because Jesus is, is whatever else he may be in human terms, he is, is very high uh, on the uh, in the divine uh, spectrum. Now, what would a low Christology be? Basically, that would be some kind of adoptionism, to use an early church term for it, uh, that uh, Jesus was uh, a, a righteous man, didn't have to be, uh, had the choice and made the right ones consistently, and for his great righteousness, uh, God has uh, exalted him to a position of cosmic authority, whatever you think that means. I mean, you, you've immediately gone over into metaphor there. I'm not sure what anybody actually pictures there, but uh, he is given the 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 title of the Son of God. Uh, after all, the kings of Judah were called the sons of God. Uh, uh, that's that ain't bad, right? That is a, a high dignity. Uh, and but he's still a glorified human being like you will be as of your resurrection one day. It, the difference between you and, and Jesus at the right hand of God is that uh, he's number one. He, he's top of the heap and he's in charge as God's lieutenant, his right hand man. Right. You're not. Uh, and uh, so that would still be a low Christology because though highly placed, He's essentially a human being. Uh, and there are, um, I guess, another low Christology would be one where you don't even get into metaphysical categories like that. But you say that uh, Jesus Christ was the greatest man who ever lived. He's just uh, 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 the paradigm for the way people uh, ought to live and, and relate to others, the man for others, as they used to say, uh, that uh, it's uh, it's like, uh, again, there's nothing supernatural about it. But uh, the Jesus Seminar generally held this view that uh, we're, we're not looking at Jesus as traditional Christian devotion did. We're looking with Jesus at what he looked at. God. Well, yeah, but why Jesus as the middleman? You're still giving Jesus a kind of a centrality, and they wouldn't deny that. Right? They they still think of what they're doing as Christianity, but I'd say that's a low Christology. That doesn't mean a bad Christology unless you hold a high one and you deem adoptionism, etc., as inadequate or inferior. And that doesn't tell the whole truth. Uh, well, yeah, then you would think it's it's bad, but it's not like you're saying Jesus is the Antichrist or something, right? I, I, what would that be called? That's lower than low. Uh, uh, so anyway, I hope that helps. Mm. Oh, I yeah, okay, I got time for a couple other quick ones. 
Jason Quackenbush says, I recently called something a Jeremiah, and the person I was talking to hadn't heard the word before. That led me to explaining that it came from the biblical book of Jeremiah, which is famous in part for its claim that Israel had fallen from a golden age into squalor, and that was why Hashem, God, had abandoned her to foreign conquerors. Uh, that, in turn, led to me giving a quick exposition on biblical minimalism, the Deuteronomic history, and the repeated propagandistic redactions and editorializations in and about the Hebrew monarchies based in Samaria and Jerusalem. That got me thinking, though, about Jeremiah himself, whoever the actual author was, and the extent to which he created the concept of the golden age of the united monarchy from which the Hebrew nations had fallen. I wonder if you could comment a bit on how the texts go about constructing that particular mythic past and how you say, how you think it played out uh, in successive periods as it was taken up by different writers. Where do you think we see the earliest textual evidence for the invention of ancient Israel, as Niels Peter Lemke calls it? When do you think that project stopped? As of the Septuagint? During the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism at Yavna? That'd be like, you know, after 70 AD. When the Masoretic project, the copying of the Masoretic text, uh, under the Muslim conquest of Palestine later? Well, uh, I guess you could um, credit Jeremiah with that because he he seems to speak of the wilderness wanderings as a kind of honeymoon period between God and his people from which they fell once they entered Canaan and were uh, corrupted by the agricultural idolatrous superstitions of the, the Canaanites, Baal worship and things like that, sacred prostitution and so on, sympathetic magic rituals for growing your plants and such like. Uh, and uh, But you're right, the question of who wrote the book of Jeremiah and when, uh, that is uh, that is a little tricky. Uh, because it kind of looks like if there was a Jeremiah, he didn't. Uh, the, the, um, a lot of, you know, they call him the weeping prophet because he's so stricken with the, the, the reception he's getting uh, from the people and the king from his preaching, urging repentance before it's too late. Uh, because they were still worshiping Baal, they hadn't set their slaves free as they said they were going to do in uh, in King Josiah's time, and so he was going to crush him by sicking Nebuchadnezzar on him. Uh, he saw it coming, and uh, then when it happened, uh, they seemed to have blamed him. They thought he was a traitor for saying, look, you might as well forget defending yourselves. God sent these people. And they threw him down a well mouth and so on. And then they retrieved him. But uh, those who uh, took it on the lamb from Babylon, Babylonian occupied 
Jerusalem, went into Egypt and brought him along, whether uh, he wanted to go or not. And they were worshipers of the Queen of Heaven. They were pagans. Uh, interesting business there. A lot to go into. Uh, this may be fictitious because the whole thing, uh, the whole point of the Deuteronomic history was to impose upon the history of Israel this uh, apostasy, punishment, repentance, restoration, apostasy, etc. You know, the cycle that you see really on display in the book of Judges. Uh, and uh, this seems to be the heart and soul of the Deuteronomic uh, history, part of the Deuteronomic Reformation that really changed the ancient religion of Israel into Judaism. Now, some people think that actually happened in the 6th century, as 6th or 7th, I forget, under King Josiah. I think, however, no, this happened in the mid-2nd century uh, BCE, that it, it was part of the Hasmonean Rebellion, uh, and that the Canaanites who supposedly corrupted those uh, innocent Israelites um, were were really simply the Israelites of the time who did not yet know about uh, Jewish monotheism and the covenant and all that. Uh, they simply were Canaanites, but now uh, they're being the the um, there's this uh, pretense that all along there was a a remnant of Israel who already knew about Mosaic monotheism. Uh, but that the the people were being seduced away from it repeatedly, and that the prophets had to arise and say, "What are you doing? You know, snap out of it!" And they would for a while. That's all artificial, in my view. So I think that that whole understanding uh, with which uh, Jeremiah resonates is quite late. Uh, it's connected with the Rechabites, who were very much like the Qumran people, and they had a desert religion, kind of like the Wahhabi sect of, of Sunni Islam. The purity of the austerity of the desert. Uh, and uh, so I think that the parting of the ways uh, came very late. And even the stuff in Jeremiah, all these long laments, so why won't they listen to me and so on, it's been shown that this stuff apparently was a collection of uh, individual lament psalms from the temple. They they weren't composed by one guy. Uh, And was Jeremiah even a historical character? Who the heck knows? Uh, So uh, I think the official version of it, Israelite history uh, is is a late growth, and that uh, Lemke is quite uh, quite correct. Oh, I can. Well, here's one from Joe Schmo, a pen name. Uh, now, there was a comment in an episode or two back uh, you made that upon death the individual would go to the other side, would age, die, be reborn, and age again in an endless cycle. Uh, you have stated aversion to the cycle of aging, as does anyone. That statement made me freeze in my tracks. Is that there in the Bible telling us that reincarnation is part of a life cycle? What say you Bible geek? Actually, I, I didn't say that. Uh, I was, uh, I think, um, 
probably talking about 1 Corinthians 15, and when it says uh, flesh and blood uh, shall not inherit the kingdom of God, uh, so that the body has to be transformed at the resurrection. Because otherwise, if it weren't transformed and they just brought you back in the shape you were in when you died, you know, that'd be like Night of the Living Dead. That Those zombie movies, though I'm a horror film fan, those zombie movies seem so ludicrous to me because they've got the, the walking dead, right? How, how's that possible? Uh, the reason that they that they died was the physical machinery went kaput. It wouldn't work anymore. So uh, when, if you imagine these rotting corpses coming back and, and, and doing anything, uh, talking, walking, whatever you, you want in these movies, that's like saying I, I, took my car to the junk heap because the in, the engine fell out and the wheels came off. But I'm driving it. But since some comet passed over, uh, and the radiation brought it back to life. And now I can drive my car without an engine and without wheels. <laughs> Get out of here. It's just absurd. But that's what you're saying. Well, in First Corinthians 15, <laughs> you couldn't possibly be raised from the dead in the rotting cadaver that they buried. No, you have to be transformed. The body has to, in effect, be replaced with something that will not get old and sick and die. Uh, otherwise, you're talking about reincarnation, right? If that happens, but you're supposed to have eternal existence, well, then you would have to have reincarnation. Uh, your res- you would have several resurrections in a series, right? Each time you withered up and died, you would come back in a brand new body. You'd be reborn until that one ran out of gas, right? So you either believe in resurrection with a transformed body uh, or reincarnation with a series of, of regular old bodies amenable to sickness, age, and death. Uh, but there is one place where the Bible almost flirts with reincarnation, and that is in John chapter 9, where uh, they see a, ma- a beggar who's blind, and uh, he's uh, been, uh, people know him, he's been born blind. And uh, and so the disciples say, well, now here's a good theological question for the uh, the Jesus geek. Uh, man, you know everything. Uh, why was this poor bastard uh, born blind? Was it because of his, was it a punishment for his own sin or for some sin of his parents? Uh, and Jesus says, <laughs> neither one. Uh, this guy, I happen to know, was born blind uh, to get to today where he'd be an object lesson for the miracle working power of God. And watch this, presto changeo. Uh, what? I, I can see. Uh, and gee, Jesus, you're shorter than I thought you'd be. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the question is swept aside. The disciples seem to think, well, it's got to be one or the other. Either they sinned and God is saying, well, I'm going to make you real sorry you did that by giving you a blind kid. <laughs> oh, brother, what a, what a God. 
as Richard Tierney said in a parody song of his, with a God like that, who needs a devil at all? Uh, or uh, in a previous life, he he did something, and now he's paying for it. Uh, and Jesus says, neither one. Unfortunately for us, Jesus doesn't say, uh, well, uh, he doesn't say, well, well, actually, what he does say, let's put it that way, is in this case, no. Does that imply that sometimes what they suggested does happen? Uh, that's uh, pretty tenuous. But, I mean, it, you could read it as saying that, that, oh, yeah, that, that can happen, but it hasn't happened this time. But it's not a positive statement that he thought it did, right, or that it could. Um, he doesn't say, oh, are you kidding? You think God pulls stunts like that? Uh, he, you know, he could have said that because uh, he does say something like it in Luke, right? He says, uh, you remember the story on the news about the Tower of Siloam collapsing on people, killing a bunch of them? Or, or that, that uh, atrocity where uh, pilots slaughtered Jews while they were offering sacrifices? You think those Jews were worse sinners than all other Jews? Uh, and that so, so that God had, uh, isolated them and said, okay, now that I got them all together, I'm gonna squash them. No! Uh, and, and that's, that's like an amazingly rationalistic sort of a thing. Uh, but he could have said that, right? What do you think? God pulled stunts like that? Get a, get, get a hold of yourself here. Uh, so it, but, uh, the thing with First Corinthians 15, uh, it, uh, it, it, uh, it's just saying that uh, it's implying that reincarnation would be the only other option if you ha- were talking about coming back from death, but not in a transformed body that would never age again. Okay, well, I better get uh, get going here. I uh, got a call coming in at two. Uh, next time we're gonna, I'm gonna spend a good bit of the time, uh, replying to an interesting thing, Dave Mersch, who wrote an interesting book called, uh, The Open Tomb, it, uh, and about the early dating of the Gospels and about the swoon theory. It's real interesting, but I want to save that. It's probably gonna take up the whole time. It's, it's long and worth the length. So, uh, anyway, I hope you'll be with me. Hopefully I can, uh, do that, uh, tomorrow sometime sometime soon anyway and thanks for being with me on this exciting episode of the bible geek